The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Uh, one thing that we often say at Redeeming Grace is that the gospel is of first importance. And the goal of every song and the goal of every sermon that we hear is to help us fix our eyes on Jesus. But, let's be clear, that does not mean that we are simply attempting to get our eyes off of ourselves and our circumstances and our dreams and our responsibilities and our loved ones and to turn a blind eye to those things while we gaze at the glory of Christ. Rather, the goal is to show you the glory of Christ and how that reorients all of those other things. This week, I read an article by a well-known Christian publication where the author argued that the only way to know God rightly is to set our eyes inward. He says, quote, knowing yourself is the key to knowing God. This couldn't be more backwards. This is, in fact, humanism, not Christianity. Imagine that you're in a dark room, and as you are in this dark room, not just like a little dark, pitch black room, you begin to get the notion that there is a spider crawling on your leg. Of course, what you would do is immediately begin flailing and flapping around like a mad person. But after you do that for a few moments, most likely what you're going to do is you're going to seek out the nearest source of light to determine whether or not your slapping indeed killed that spider. Is it real or is it imagined? Is it dead or is it alive? Seeing Christ rightly illuminates who you are. It shines a light onto you. Yesterday at the men's breakfast, Jonathan Rodriguez did a phenomenal job teaching about Jesus as the light of the world. One of the aspects of this text that he brought forth was the manner in which Christ shines a light on our sin. And looking at the perfect face of Jesus shows us our imperfect reflection. John Calvin explains this very truth at the outset of his institutes this way. He says, Man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. Today, we come to the conclusion of our big picture series. One of my former professors used to say that the gospel is like a precious jewel, a marvelous gemstone that was splendorous. And as you take it down and you observe it, you will see from many different angles that it continues to shine and have different ways of showing its beauty. And as you look at different angles, you will see different forms of its majesty. Well, that's what the gospel is like. And in this series, we have covered some of the major themes of the Bible. And as we have looked at those themes, we have seen the glory of God. We have gotten a deeper appreciation for God's grand plan to save his people from their sin. Now, I hope you've noticed that in every one of those sermons, we did the opposite of what the man in that article was saying to do. We did not begin by saying, what are you like? Now let's transpose that onto what God's plan must be. Rather, we always approached what the Bible says about God and his plan first. And then we brought that down so that we would see ourselves correctly. The reason I belabor this point right at the outset is very simply this. Today, we are going to be learning about the kingdom of God. 
Unfortunately, the approach of most teachers and preachers and Christian scholars even is usually to begin considering the people and then to take that and push it upward to define the kingdom rather than first looking at the king of the kingdom. So contrary to this common practice, we are going to seek first the understanding of God's plan and God's purpose and only secondly look into the scope of distinction between the people of God. So today, our outline is going to be very simple. We're going to ask and answer three simple questions. First, what is the kingdom? Secondly, who belongs to the kingdom? And finally, what is our part in advancing the kingdom? We will spend most of our time on the first question and very little time on the final question. But before we dig into these things, we once again want to make sure that God is at the center of all that we are doing. So let's ask him to be serving us this morning as we pray. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for the many ways that you are working in the lives of the people who are sitting here, ways that I can see and ways that I don't see. I thank you, God, that there are people here who know you and who have been transformed by the gospel. I thank you that there are people whose hearts have been radically changed and that we have gone from being rebels to being children of God. And God, I pray that for those who know you, that this would be an enlightening, encouraging, uplifting, helpful sermon as we hear about your call, your intention, your purpose in building a kingdom for yourself. What is it that you are doing so that we might take part? And God, I pray for those who are outside of your kingdom, those who are not currently living for Jesus Christ, those who do not know you in a saving way. I pray for them that today that you would break down any barrier, whether it be uh, something that they are having a difficulty understanding in their mind or even more so the challenge of their sin that they don't want to repent from god i pray that today you would break those things and cause them to be reborn so that they might trust christ with all of their life lord i thank you that it doesn't matter where we gather whether it's in this room or in a palace somewhere or under a tree in the desert god we thank you that we can gather And be part of your kingdom, regardless of geography, regardless of location, because you have given us your son and he is with us and your spirit is here in our presence this morning. So, Father, I pray that today as we gather around you, that we would make sure that we are gathering around the cross of your son, Jesus Christ, that we are keeping our focus and attention on that gospel that you have given us. That is of first importance. So, God, today, I pray that you would be with me as I preach that this would be a sermon with clarity, and I pray that you would please give wisdom to those who hear, that they would apply and they would be able to live based upon these words. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Sometimes we take definitions for granted. Now, we just assume something, that we understand it because we've heard the word so many times that we think we know what it means. And we can get away with that for the most part most of the time, with most things. That's how we survive as human beings. If you had to know every intricate detail of everything that you interacted with, you would freeze and come to a a halt and never be able to accomplish anything. So I know what an engine is, but I have no idea how it works, so I'm not sure exactly how I would define it other than to simply say, it makes my car go. But I have no need to define it, so I don't. But there are some definitions that we dare not overlook. Rocky, where are you right now? Where'd you go? In case of building management, what would it be like if one of your coworkers didn't actually know the definition of fire alarm? 
problematic, right? Steve, at your school, let's say one of your new teachers gets to the end of the semester and you ask for the grades for the class and they say, what are grades? Be a problem. We need to know the definition of important things. It is not to say that you have one job, but it is to say that there are some parts of the job that are of utmost significance. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 33, but seek ye first, what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You have a responsibility above all others. Seek the kingdom. Make that priority number one. That is crucial. It is critical. It is indispensable indispensable, and an essential part of the Christian life. Then if that is true, we'd better know and be clear on what the kingdom is so that we know what it looks like to seek it out. But if you read the hundreds of references to the kingdom throughout the Bible, you will find that it is surprisingly difficult to get a simple definition of what kingdom means. And there's a reason for that. The reason is something like this. Every kingdom that exists or ever has existed contains at least these three elements. It has first a ruler, an individual who is in charge of all of these things. Second, it has a group of people that belong to the kingdom. And thirdly, it has a location that holds all of those people. The reason that it's challenging to define kingdom in the Bible is that sometimes it is highlighting one of those three aspects over the other two. That is why I particularly appreciate the definition of kingdom offered by Patrick Schreiner. He says, quote, the kingdom is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. It's a really helpful, easy way to remember what we're talking about when we talk about the kingdom. The king's power over the king's people in the king's place. Now, we're going to hammer these three Ps home multiple times, power, people, place, and we're going to see it all throughout the scripture. We begin at the beginning. We see that God created Adam and Eve, and he placed them in the garden. Now, several weeks ago, we already examined the kingly role and the dominion of Adam in the garden. And part of his role was to order the earth to make it a reflection of heaven itself. How so? The garden was to be a place filled with the glory of God and God's presence dwelling with man. And as they were fruitful and they multiplied, and as their their brood would have spread across the world, that kingdom of God would have spread across the earth with them. So in order to get this clearly, we need to also make sure that we understand the definition that I am using here for the word glory. Once again, definitions are very important. And I would ask you right now, can you imagine how you would define the term glory? What exactly is it? What am I talking about when I speak about God's glory? Again, I'm going to borrow a definition because I believe other people have done a great job uh, thinking through this, and I'm going to borrow this one from John Piper. He defines God's glory like this. God's glory is the radiance of his holiness, the radiance of his manifold, infinitely worthy, and valuable perfections. Now imagine that you're standing in a cold room. There's a heater on one side of the room. If you're standing far away from it, that heater is still heating. It is still pumping out that same amount of radiance. 
But you might not notice it if you're turned the other way and standing against the opposite wall. When you come near to it and you see it, you feel it, that radiates into you. That is the glory of the existing presence of that heat. Now, that's a very poor metaphor. So allow me to uh, borrow from John Piper as he further explains this way. The public display of the infinite beauty and worth of God is what I mean by glory. And I base that partly on Isaiah 6, where the seraphim say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his, and you would expect them to say, holiness. And they say, glory. They're ascribing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his, and when that goes public in the earth and fills it, you call it glory. So what do I mean when I say glory? I mean that God is holy, but we don't see that. When Adam and Eve fell, they plunged the entire human race into a terrible predicament. Now we are born completely blind to the holiness of God. So when we don't see it, we are not giving God glory. Even though God is immutable and he never changes, he cannot be given one ounce of more holiness. He cannot be given one ounce of more preciousness We don't necessarily see that because our perception of God's holiness has been destroyed by our sin nature. So right from the outset, we need to understand that every time we see God's pursuit of expanding a kingdom, it is immeasurably gracious because what he is doing is he is making himself seen by us. He is making himself visible to those who have rejected and turned against the other wall to look away from him. And he is turning our faces back to say, there is warmth. There is something good and helpful for you here. There is something of great immeasurable value. And the very nature of the kingdom of God is that the king himself, the king of the kingdom, is pursuing the citizens who have rejected him and become traitors against him. And the great story of the Bible is the story of that king. It is ultimately his story. So let's trace that story rapidly through the remainder of the Old Testament. Long after Adam, God called an idol worshiper to leave his homeland to go to a promised land. That man, Abraham, was then the recipient of many incredible promises. But God told him that those promises would not be fulfilled immediately. In particular, he was told in Genesis 15, 13, it says, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So there's a promise. He actually covenants with Abraham that he would receive a kingdom and his kingdom would be filled with the people and he would have a place. And then... He says, but they're not even going to get into a place for another 430 years. And then that's exactly what happened. They were enslaved in Egypt where the people cried out for a better king and for a better kingdom. And God raised up a deliverer who would deliver them. And out of a burning bush, God said to Moses, the deliverer, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry. I've heard them. I hear them. I know what's happening. But Moses proved to be an insufficient deliverer because even though God brought them out of the land, Moses could not bring them into the land of promise. After 40 years of wandering, the Lord did lead the people into the land, but because of his own sin, Moses was not permitted to lead them in that procession. 
Instead, Joshua led the Israelites into the land, and he fought, perhaps, the greatest, most strategically brilliant conquest in history. And when the victory had finally been won, Joshua calls all of these people together, all of these people of Israel, into one location, and he brings the nation to a unit and says, well, he spends the first 13 verses reminding them, this is what God did for you. He crushed the head of the Egyptians. He brought you out through many plagues and through the Red Sea and through the wilderness. He brought you out even though you have rejected him and rebelled against him and complained and grumbled over and over. He brought you out even though the Amalekites came against us and the Jebusites came against us and the Girgashites and he goes through the entire list and he shows them over and over and over the faithfulness and the power of God who is their deliverer. And as he explains these things to them, he comes to a conclusion of sorts in verse 14. And he says, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. And after giving more instruction about putting away idols, the people affirm their commitment to the Lord. In verse 16 through 18, they say, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us out, uh, brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us all in the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. So they are making a promise. And the very next words out of the mouth of Joshua must have been shocking to them. They're recognizing that God used his power to make his people in this place. But now notice how Joshua responds to them in the very next verse. He says to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Now, if you read further in the account, you will see the people actually argue with Joshua And they believed that they as a nation are going to be able to fulfill their end of the bargain, their end of the covenant. However, if you turn over one page in your Bible to the book of Judges, chapter 2, verse 10, it tells you exactly what happened to the nation directly following the death of Joshua. It says, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. They forgot in one generation. They're promising here, yes, we'll follow God. We'll we'll serve him. We'll, we'll, We'll do everything that he commanded us in the covenant. But then immediately within one generation, their own children who were standing there present did not follow after God. Have you ever desperately wanted something, like really wanted something, and then when you got it, you realize it's really not that fulfilling? It's not great. Probably every Christmas this happens to you. Um, When I was growing up, I had a a youth minister named Juan Esparza. And more than anything in the world, he wanted a, I know nothing about cars, so I might get this wrong, but I think it was a uh, 1974, rather, uh, Chevy Nova Candy Apple Red. That's what he wanted more than anything in the world. And he got it. And then I, for the next three years, rode around with him on a regular basis, going all over southeast Kansas and the Midwest, and every time I was in that vehicle with Juan Esparza, he complained about something new that was broken or falling apart or had to be repaired. And over and over and over, he had to fix this piece of junk car that he had wanted so much. Now, the Israelites got the land. They got the land. But they immediately forgot what was actually of value, which was God himself. 
they got what they perceived to be the kingdom, but they had no king. They had rejected him. Their kingdom was focusing on things other than God and his glory. They were not advancing the cause of God in any way. In fact, when you get to the, book, the end of the book of Judges, roughly 350, verse, 350 years after Joshua died, we read these words. The very last verse of the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, there is nothing more antithetical to the notion of God's kingdom than the anarchy that we see taking place at the end of Judges. They are not acknowledging God's reign. They are not aware of his glory, and they are not following his commandments. They are literally doing whatever they want. Then... We are ushered into the era of the kings. But how does that happen? How do we transition from the period of judges to the period of kings? Well, the events of Samuel chapter, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8 are truly a watershed moment for the people of Israel. The people are now clamoring for a king. They see Samuel's sons and they're like, we do not want them to have anything to do with leading us. So they begin saying, we want to be like all the other nations. We want to have strength like they do because all of them are amassing big armies and military might and we don't want to be defenseless. So we need a king that will unify us. And Samuel warned them. He told them, this is not what God has brought for you. He has not given this to you. Do not pursue this. It will be bad for you. But finally, God spoke to Samuel and told him exactly what he wanted to do. Give them a king. And he said to them in verse 7, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Do you see that God's position was supposed to be the king? He was supposed to be the ruling authority, and they were supposed to see him as their commander-in-chief. Who is it that led them in conquest? It wasn't Joshua. Joshua was getting orders from the king. Joshua was just a general. And as we see what is taking place here in the nation of Israel, they are supposed to be honoring God and following him and trusting him, but instead they reject him and rebel against him. So God says, you know what, if they want a king so bad, other than myself... I'll give them Saul. And immediately the people began to regret it. God set up the nation to operate with himself at the wheel, but the people were unwilling to trust God or to follow his commands. So then he gave Saul and then David and then Solomon. And after that, the nation became so fragile that it broke in two and the north and the south both had 19 kings and all of the kings of, of each of these kingdoms, even the best of them were flawed, imperfect reflections of the true king. None of them measured up. None of them were what the true king was supposed to be. And as you read through the history of the Old Testament, over and over and over, what you were supposed to see when you look at those kings is the fact that there should be a better king and a better kingdom. Many times in the Old Testament prophets, there are, are allusions or shadows pointing forward to the fact that the true kingdom of God is much bigger and much better than the thing that the people there knew or understood. So for the sake of time, we're not going to look at much of them, but I want to look at two quick verses. Earlier, Gene read to us from Isaiah chapter 11. That passage is a messianic promise for what the coming king was going to do. And notice how that prophecy lands in verse 9. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Is that what was taking place in 
Jerusalem? Is that what was taking place in Israel? Is that what was taking place in either the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom? The answer is absolutely a resounding no. Although Jerusalem had been the capital of Israel and the temple had been the dwelling place of the presence of the Lord, the knowledge about God was very limited to the fact that we saw a few weeks ago that by the time Josiah became the king, they had completely forgotten that most of the scriptures even existed. But God was promising a coming kingdom where he would make himself known far beyond the borders of Judah, which is a good thing because God eventually sent Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army to come and destroy Jerusalem, to come and destroy the temple, to destroy Judah, and to take captives into exile. And one of those captives was Daniel. Now, after a time of mandated re-education, Daniel was made a wise man for the king. And simply put, he is put into an impossible situation of interpreting a dream for the king, even though the king can't tell him what the dream was about, because he himself has forgotten what he dreamt. But God gave Daniel insight into the intricate details of exactly what was going on in the the mind of Nebuchadnezzar that night when he slept. He saw a massive statue who had head of gold and that he had chest and arms of silver. And as you see through the rest of it, these different parts of this statue represent different kingdoms that would arise, different nations that would rule the earth. The head itself being the present ruler of the world, Nebuchadnezzar. But then at the end of the dream, Daniel reveals that the, the, the following words in Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 through 45. It says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. What are we talking about today? This is what we are talking about today. God himself is going to set up a kingdom. Now, this is not past tense. This is future tense at the time Daniel is stating this. He will set up a kingdom of what type? One that will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. God was revealing to this pagan king that there was no doubt there was a better king and a better kingdom coming. And that kingdom would supplant every other kingdom. And that kingdom would not originate from the same kind of human effort that all others do. Rather, it would be a kingdom of divine origins, not crafted by human hands. And when this stone arrived, it would inaugurate the kingdom that would have no end. All these other kingdoms, they fade. He says, and another people come in. This one will not be inherited by another people. Think about what happens to the Babylonians. Well, first, let's go back to the Assyrians. What happened to them? They go in, they attack the Israelites, and then they keep coming, and they keep coming, and they keep coming until something happens in their kingdom. They become weak, and then they are destroyed by the Babylonians. And then not much time goes by before the Medo-Persian Empire comes and destroys them. And then as we go throughout history, then we have the Greeks that come in, and then the Romans that come in. And throughout history, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, and somebody inherits everything that, was been, that has been earned by another. But he says, the people of this kingdom will never lose their inheritance. And the rock that has come That stone that is cut out without human instrumentality is Jesus Christ himself. Consider the very first words of Jesus in the book of Mark, chapter 1, verse 15. When he comes onto the scene, the very first thing he says in that book is this. 
the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is openly and straightforwardly presenting himself as the king who is now inaugurating a new kingdom. But he would be a king that is very unlike Adam. He was a king very unlike every other king who would ever live before him. He would always honor his father and always please him. He would be a deliverer better than Moses because he would faithfully lead his people not only out of bondage but into deliverance and freedom in the land of promise. He would be the king of righteousness who would not be self-seeking like the kings of Israel. Rather, he would humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, for the sake of his citizens. And it is for this reason that God gave him a name that is highly exalted. What does that mean? What does it mean that God has highly exalted Jesus? It means that Jesus has been given the highest position in the universe and beyond it. He has ensured the preeminence of Christ, that he is the king who is unmatched in authority. And he has given him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee, every knee, every knee will bow. What do you do before a king? You bow to the king. Your knee, my knee, every person's knee will bow before that king because he is worthy and has all authority. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does it mean that he is Lord? It means that he is the complete, absolute ruler that there is no one who can challenge his place of authority. So if our purpose is to give God glory, like we have said, then we should ask ourselves, how does God get glory? And the Bible gives us the same answer many times in a myriad of ways. But as we just read in this text, when our knees bow and our tongues confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that's when God gets glory. Our recognition of Christ's holiness and our submission to his authority is our beholding his beauty and his worth. And that is when God gets glory. And when we behold his infinite value and when we see him as precious, we spread his glory. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So let's now consider our second question. That was point number one. We'll move much more rapidly from this point forward. We're going to answer now or attempt to who is it that belongs to this kingdom? Oftentimes, one of the most helpful ways that we consider who is in something is to consider looking who is not part of something, which we will do in a moment. One of the reasons that Jesus was so offensive to the Israelite people is that he upended their understanding of who it was that would receive or inherit the kingdom of God. I want to take a moment to show you some of the statements that would have been most upsetting to them. In Matthew chapter 5, Verse 20, Jesus said, For I tell you, and now he's speaking to a group of Jewish individuals, unless your righteousness exceeds, goes beyond, surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, your righteousness is not going to get you there. Your good works are not good enough. You are not meeting the standards. Even the Pharisees, who are the most pious and righteous among you, are not even close. So you have to be better than the best of these people. That would have been very offensive. Secondly, when Jesus healed the servant of a Gentile centurion, Jesus explained something that would have shocked and horrified the people of Israel. Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 through 12. I tell you, Many will come from east and west and recline at table 
with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Pause for a second. That is the goal if you are a Jewish individual in this time, right? You want to be fellowshipping in the kingdom with the patriarchs. That is your desire to be elevated to the point of saying, I am one of these Hebrew of Hebrews who is followed after God and now receives the great inheritance of the kingdom. And he says, I'm going to bring people who are from the east and west. And in reference to this, he's talking about the fact that a Gentile has just come to him in faith. And he's saying, I'm going to bring people who are not Jewish to the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That would have been offensive on its own. But consider how much more and how much more highly offensive this would have been in verse 12. He says, not only will I bring them in, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, now he is speaking to the Jewish people and he is telling them some Gentiles will be included while some Jews will be excluded. That would have been terrifying and incredibly frustrating for them to hear. Along those same, same lines, John the Baptist had already rebuked the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, saying to them, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, don't think that your bloodline is getting you anywhere with God. God can make these rocks children of Abraham if he wanted to. He can make anybody into a child of Abraham if he wanted to. That will be key for us in a few moments. Fourth, Jesus would further prove that national Israel was not what he was talking about as a kingdom when he referenced the Pharisees as children of of the devil. Please understand what I'm saying here. Pay close attention. When he is talking to a group of Jewish individuals, he is going to tell them something very significant about themselves. Jesus is going to explain why it is that they have been stripped of any spiritual relationship to Abraham and his promises. John chapter 8, verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Jesus is not questioning their biological lineage. He's not questioning whether or not they have the physical heritage of Abraham in their physical bodies. We know these people were biological descendants of Abraham. Instead of Abraham, though, Jesus is telling them that they have a different family tree. You are not from Abraham, because if you were, you would live like Abraham and pursue the things of Abraham. Rather, in verse 44, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's will. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, please understand, when he is saying all of these things about the devil, he is also by nature saying, since they do the same thing he does, he is saying them about those people. Those are not the people that are going to inherit the kingdom of God. He is making it clear you are outside of the promises. Remember, these are Jewish people biologically, but Jesus is setting them outside the promise. Why? Because they have rejected him. So then it is not those who are physical descendants who receive the promises of the kingdom. If what I've just told you is true, then it should be backed up as the common pattern of the New Testament. And indeed it is. We obviously don't have time to do a deep dive on that now, so instead we're simply going to look at three quick texts that all show you that those who trust in Christ are part of the kingdom and that it has nothing to do with inherited biology. First, 
The book of Galatians is an extended argument of works against works-based faith. It is an extended argument to say that there is no way to God by doing something of the Jewish traditions. In it, Paul makes clear that God was bringing both Jews and Gentiles who trust Christ together into a single kingdom for himself. That is why he says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 9, So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And again, he says in Galatians three twenty nine, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heir according to the promise. In other words, we are children of Abraham if we have faith in Christ. Please understand that, that horribly obnoxious children's song, Father Abraham had many sons, I am one of them and so are you. It is horribly obnoxious, but if you are in Christ, it's true. That if you are in Christ, then you are a descendant and an heir of the promises that God has made to him. Secondly, Jesus makes it clear that both Jews and Gentiles who follow him are part of his kingdom in John chapter 10. Consider verses 26 through 27. Jesus is speaking to a group of Jewish people when he says to them, But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. He is saying to a group of people who are biologically from the line of Abraham and saying to them, You are not mine. You are not my sheep. You don't belong to me. You are not mine. And that is why you do not listen. Please understand. Why is it that people come to God or reject him? It is because they belong to him or they do not. That is what comes first. And speaking of the Gentiles, he said in verse 16 of the same chapter, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So it is not that there are two peoples of God, there is one. So this might seem trivial, but much of the confusion, especially surrounding the end times, revolves around the misguided and troubling teaching that God has two peoples, the Jews and the Christian church. There is an entire branch of theology that has arisen over the last 150 to 200 years, which claims that the church is a temporary, secondary people of God. But the true people of God will always be ethnic Israel. This, however, is not supported by Scripture in any way, which leads us now to our final text for this issue. Romans chapter 9. Paul is responding to the question some believers who have a vehement... Why, why is it that the Jewish people have a vehement rejection of the gospel? The, these Christians are looking at the response of the majority of the Jewish nation saying, they knew that there was a king coming. Yet when he arrived, they have pushed him away. Now that is definitely not true of all the Jewish people, by no means. But they are asking, why is it that so many have not received him? And they ask the question, has God's promise to them failed? And Paul replies to them to show them that God is accomplishing precisely what he intended to. So in verses 6 through 8, he explains, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. It's not that way. God has never failed a promise, and he never will. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Do not overlook that. Not all who physically, biologically descend from Israel belong to him. There are some that do not. And then he continues, And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. 
this passage makes it very clear that there are some biological Jews who are part of the kingdom and some who are not. Just like there are some Gentiles who are children of Abraham by faith, and there are many who are not. So let's bring this down to where we live. There's a lot of theology here. There's a lot of stuff out there. Let's bring this down now to a very practical rubber meets the road situation. Allow me to offer you a few quick applications. First, a biblical view will never overestimate the value of ethnic Israel. There are some who believe that the promises of God are going to be given to the Jewish people regardless of their response to the gospel. Allow me to tell you a quick story. I grew up in southeast Kansas where we have almost no Jewish people, if you can imagine. It's not like Long Island. It's a very different place. But when I grew up, I knew one man who was Jewish. And I think he was actually from Long Island. He was from New York. But I think he was from here, by the way. Um, and he was on the radio. He had a call name, Yankee Dave, they called him. And obviously. And um, I had a lot of conversations with him about the gospel. And uh, I used to serve at a Christian coffeehouse ministry. And um, one night I was sharing the gospel with him uh, as clearly as I knew how at the time. And I was told, I was given a signal by the people who were the directors of that ministry, just like, stop, stop. So I did. I stopped. And I didn't know what the, the deal was. I didn't know if there was a problem. I didn't know if I was saying something wrong. So afterwards, late that night, I went to them. One o'clock in the morning, I said, what exactly, why did you stop me? What, what, was, what was I doing wrong? And they said to me, you don't need to share the gospel with him. He's going to heaven anyway. That is a terrible system of belief. In fact, that is damning to those who do not hear the gospel because we fail to teach them because we think that because of their national heritage, they have an inheritance in heaven. That is a deadly view that has resulted in many people avoiding their responsibility to proclaim the gospel. And they were part of the Baptist church in my hometown. I want to tell you this is not a small problem. It is a big one. Secondly, so that's first, a biblical view will not overestimate the value of the Jewish people. Secondly, a biblical view will not underestimate the value of Jewish people. Some have used passages like the ones that I have just read to you, among many others, to condemn modern, physical Jewish people as entirely evil. I, I believe that Martin Luther is one of the greatest people who has ever lived in terms of not only Christian history, but world history. He is an incredible man who did incredible things for God. However, it does not take a lot of research to find that his view of the Jewish people went well into the realm of racism and hatred. And it is absolutely ungodly to view the people of Israel, the modern Jews, as people who are less than anyone else. Anti-Semitism is absolutely a problem, and Long Island is definitely not immune to that kind of racism or any other kind of racism for that matter. Anti-Semitism is a problem even here, and I have seen it. And if that exists in your heart, the word of God demands that you kill that animosity and that you destroy it by taking it to the cross. So we don't want to say these people are overly blessed because they have a history in the oracles of God. And we also don't want to say that they are evil because they have rejected they have rejected and they are responsible for jesus being on the cross just as much as we are so i want you to understand we must serve and love and share the gospel with everyone of every race third most importantly here 
The promises of God are for you if you are in Christ. Jesus is your king, and you are a citizen of his kingdom. You're not a second-class citizen based upon your race or ethnicity. Jesus has called out a people from every tongue and tribe and nation, and he is the one who has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. We are one in him. So he has given us the spiritual inheritance of the promises of Israel. Now that might sound like a small thing, but once again, especially when you get into the realms of what is taking place at the end of your Bible, the end times questions, we are the ones who inherit that kingdom and the promises of Abraham are ours in Christ Jesus. I also want to say that when we talk about bloodlines and the who belongs to the kingdom of God, there is a question that often arises in churches about children who are born and grow up into the church. And whether this is something that is thought through and carefully observed or questioned, or whether this is something that is just naturally kind of assumed, we have to make sure that we are not looking at people who are children of Christians and say, they are Christians because they were born from a parent or parents who are Christians. There is no biological lineage of the church, just like there is no biological lineage of the people of Israel that has an inheritance. Your children must accept the gospel just like you must accept the gospel. You must trust Jesus in faith and repent. If they do not, then they are not part of the kingdom. Now, please understand, this means parents We are not to be lax or lazy in sharing the promise of God with our children by sharing the gospel with them at every turn. Every opportunity to discipline your children, which are numerous, are opportunities to show them the gospel. Your heart is filled with sin. You do these things because your heart is set against God. You desperately need Jesus. Every time they sin, it is an opportunity to show them that there is a small day of judgment here for you in hopes that you will miss the great day of judgment as I point you to the one who can help you avoid that place. This brings us now to our final question. What is our part in advancing the kingdom? Now, this sermon functionally operates as a preview. I am going to only briefly answer this question. And only slightly touch on it because this is a jumping off point for us as we are going to begin very soon traveling through on Sunday mornings the book of Acts. And as we go through the book of Acts, you are going to see example after example after example of what it looks like to take part in the glorious work of kingdom building for Jesus. But for now, I simply want to remind you of our New Testament reading this morning. Matthew 28, 18-20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority, kingly language, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus commissions us because he has authority in heaven and on earth, because he is king over all things, he says, go therefore, based upon verse 18. If he is not king over all, then he has no authority to commission us to do what he says in verses 19 and 20. But because he is Lord of all, he tells us to go therefore and make disciples. What does that look like? It includes things like supporting our missionaries like Rachel and the Shreks and the Kunis in Indonesia. But it is also a personal call for you. 
It is a personal daily call to take up your cross, not only privately, but publicly as you display God to the world and go out and make disciples. If you are a disciple, that is your job to make disciples. If you are not a disciple, that means you are not part of the kingdom. So maybe that's you today. Maybe you're here and you've heard the words and you hear what I'm saying, but you don't even know how you would become a child of God. Allow me to share briefly with you what that means. The good news is this, this king that we've been hearing about, this king from all eternity past determined that he would create a people. And he created this world, he created this planet, and he filled it at the very beginning with two. And those two sinned against him and rebelled. And from them came an entire people group of rebellious, uh, rebellious uh, rebels who have rejected God. That's you, that's me, that's how we start. That's how our lives begin. We are rebels by birth. But God, in his own mercy and his love, sent his son to chase after rebels and redeem them and restore them and bring them back into the kingdom. And how did he do that? He sent a perfect son who never once sinned, like you and I do every single day. He sent a perfect son, his only son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, unstained by any kind of rebellion. And this perfect son experienced the death that we deserve. The wages of sin is death. He did not earn that like we have. But he was still one who experienced death. Why? Because he was making a perfect trade. He was taking all of our sin on his shoulders and he was giving us his righteousness. So that if you will believe in Jesus, believe that he died for your sins, you will be saved. And death could not hold him, but he raised on the third day. And just as we have read many times, he is ruling and reigning as king over all right now. The question is, will you perceive it? Will you see God as authoritative over your life? If you see him today, repent and believe and you will be saved. So now we bring our sermon this morning to a close. And the way we have closed every sermon in this series is by ending at the end of the book in Revelation. So allow me one last time in this series to close from Revelation, this time from chapter 5, verse 13. It says, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And we can all say... Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word today. I pray that even though this was just a cursory glance, an introduction to the kingdom, I pray, God, that you would give us great joy in seeing the king of that kingdom, the one who is better and more perfect than any who have ever attempted to be kings in this world. God, I pray that just as we sang earlier, that what we have heard today would cause us to come to a point where we would never cease to praise. Lord, we would never stop seeing the great worth of your Son. And in doing so, we would give him glory, that we would expand his glory by recognizing and seeing his great value and showing the world those things. Lord, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that the the unbelievers, that those who are not part of his family, would look and see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Lord, I pray that we would not seek for any of that glory on our own, We would not rob God in any way of his glory by the way that we live or the way that we speak, but instead that we would attempt to give all glory and honor and praise to you and to your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.